Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners, to Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales, and I'm your host, The Tale Teller. And today's episode is an audiobook narration, so I won't keep you waiting. Turn the lights off, turn the sound up, and take a journey with me. Oh, and El Raimi. Enjoy. Chapter 3 A dim red light burned in the narrow hall, just sufficient to enable him to see the wooden peg on which he was accustomed to hang his hat and overcoat, and as soon as he had divested himself of his outdoor garb, he extinguished even that faint glimmer of radiance. Opening a side door, he entered his own room, a picturesque apartment running from east to west, the full length of the house. From its appearance, it had evidently once served as drawing room and dining room, with folding doors between, but the folding doors had been dispensed with and the place they had occupied was now draped with heavy amber silk. This silk seemed to be of some peculiar and costly make, for it sparkled with iridescent gleams of silver, like diamond dust when El Raimi turned on the electric burner, which, in the form of a larger flower, depended from the ceiling by quaintly worked silver chains, and was connected by a fine wire with a shaded reading lamp on the table. There was not much of either beauty or value in the room, yet, without being at all luxurious, it suggested luxury. The few chairs were of the most ordinary make, all save one, which was of finely carved ebony and was piled with silk cushions of amber and red. The table was of plain painted deal, covered with a dark woolen cloth worked in and out with threads of gold. There were a few geometrical instruments about, a large pair of globes, a rack on the wall stocked with weapons for the art of fence, and one large bookcase full of books. An ebony-cased pianette occupied one corner, and on a small side table stood a heavily made oaken chest, brass-bound and double-locked. The furniture was completed by a plain camp bedstead, such as soldiers use, which at the present moment was partly folded up and almost hidden from view by a rough bearskin thrown carelessly across it. El Remy sat down in the big ebony chair and looked at the pile of letters lying on his writing table. They were from all sorts of persons, princes, statesmen, diplomats, financiers, and artists in all the professions. He recognized the handwriting on some of the envelopes, and his brows contracted in a frown as he tossed them aside still, unopened. They must wait, he said half aloud, curious that it is impossible for a man to be original without attracting around him a set of unoriginal minds, as though he were a honeypot and they the flies. Who would believe that I... Poor in worldly goods, and living in more or less obscurity, should, without any wish of my own, be in touch with kings, should know the last new policy of governments before it's made ripe for public declaration, should hold the secrets of my lord and my lady, 
apart from each other's cognizance, and be able to amuse myself with their little ridiculous matrimonial differences, as though they were puppets playing their parts for use at a marionette show. I do not ask these people to confide in me. I do not want them to seek me out. And yet the cry is, still they come. And the attributes of my own nature are such that, like a magnet, I attract and so am never left in peace. Yet perhaps it is well it should be thus. I need the external distraction. Otherwise my mind would be too much like a bent bow, fixed on the one center. The great secret. And its powers might fail me at the last. But no, failure is impossible now, steeled against love, hate, and all the merely earthly passions of mankind as I am, I must succeed, and I will. He leaned his head on one hand and seemed to suddenly concentrate his thoughts on one particular subject. His eyes dilated and grew luridly brilliant as those sparks of fire burnt behind them. He had not sat thus for more than a couple of minutes when the door opened gently and a beautiful youth, clad in a loose white tunic and vest of eastern fashion, made his appearance and, standing silently on the threshold, seemed to wait for some command. So, Ferris, you heard my summons, said El Remy gently. I heard my brother speak responded Ferraz in a low, melodious voice that had a singularly dreamy, faraway tone within it. Through a wall of cloud and silence, his beloved accents fell like music on my ears. He called me, and I came. And, sighing lightly, he folded his arms crosswise on his breast and stood erect and immovable looking like some fine statue just endowed by magic with the flush of life. He resembled El Remy in features, but was fairer skinned. His eyes were softer and more femininely lovely. His hair, black as night, clustered in thick curls over his brow, and his figure, straight as a young palm tree, was a perfect model of strength, united with grace. But just now, he had a strangely absorbed air. His eyes, though they were intently fixed on El Remy's face, looked like the eyes of a sleepwalker, so dreamy were they while wide open. And as he spoke, he smiled vaguely, as one who hears delicious singing afar off. El Remy studied him intently for a minute or two. Then, removing his gaze, pressed a small silver handbell at his side. It rang sharply out on the silence. Ferraz. Ferraz started, rubbed his eyes, glanced about him, and then sprang toward his brother with quite a new expression. One of grace, eagerness, and animation that intensified his beauty and made him still more worthy the admiration of a painter or a sculptor. El Remy, at last, how late you are. I waited for you long, and then I slept. I am sorry, but you called me in the usual way, I suppose. And I did not fail you. Ah, no, I should come to you if I were dead. 
he dropped on one knee and raised El Remy's hand caressingly to his lips. Where have you been all the evening? He went on. I have missed you greatly. The house is so silent. El Remy touched his clustering curls tenderly. You could have made music in it with your lute and voice, Faraz, had you chosen. He said, As for me, I went to see Hamlet. Oh, why did you go? demanded Faraz impetuously. I would not see it. No, not for worlds. Such poetry must needs be spoilt by men's mouthing of it. It is better to read it. To think it, to feel it, and so one actually sees it best. You talk like a poet, said Oremi indulgently. You are not much more than a boy, and you think the thoughts of youth. Have you any supper ready for me? Ferez smiled and sprang up, left the room and returned in a few minutes with a daintily arranged tray of refreshments, which he set before his brother with all the respect and humility of a well-trained domestic in attendance of his master. You have supped? El Remy asked as he poured out wine from the delicately shaped Italian flask beside him. Ferraz nodded. Yes, Zaroba supped with me, but she was cross tonight. She had nothing to say. El Remy smiled. That is unusual. Ferraz went on. There have been many people here. They all wanted to see you. They have left their cards. Some of them asked me my name and who I was. I said I was your servant, but they would not believe me. There were great folks among them. They came in big carriages with prancing horses. Have you seen their names? Not I. Ah, oh, you are so indifferent, said Ferez gaily. He had no quite lost his dreamy and abstracted look and talked on in an eager boyish way that suited his years. He was barely twenty. You are so bent on great thoughts that you cannot see little things. But these dukes and earls who come to visit you do not consider themselves little, not they. Yet many of them are the least among little men, said Oremi with a touch of scorn in his mellow accents. Dowered with great historic names, which they almost despise, they do their best to drag their memory of their ancient lineage into dishonor by vulgar passions, low tastes, and a scorn as well as lack of true intelligence. Let us not talk of them. The English aristocracy was once a magnificent tree, but its broad boughs are fallen, lopped off and turned into saleable timber, and there is but a decaying stump of it left. So Zoroba said nothing to you tonight? Scarce a word. She was very sullen. She bade me tell you all was well. That is her usual formula. I do not understand it. What is it that should be well or ill? You never explain your mystery.
He smiled, but there was a vivid curiosity in his fine eyes. He looked as if he would have asked more, had he dared to do so. Elder Raimi evaded his questioning glance. Speak for yourself, he said. Did you wander at all into your dreamland today? I was there when you called me, replied Ferraz quickly. I saw my home, its trees and flowers. I listened to the ripple of its fountains and streams. It is harvest time there, do you know? I heard the reapers singing as they carried home the sheaves. His brother surveyed him with a fixed and wondering scrutiny. How absolute you are in your faith, he said half enviously. You think it is your home, but it is only an idea after all, an idea born of a vision. Does a mere visionary idea engender love and longing? exclaimed Ferraz impetuously. Oh no, El Remy. It cannot do so. I know the land I see, so often what you call a dream. Its mountains are familiar to me. Its people are my people, yes. I am remembered there, and so are you. We dwelt there once. We shall dwell there again. It is your home as well as mine. That bright and far-off star where there is no death, but only sleep. Why, we were exiled from our happiness, El Remy. Can your wisdom tell? I know nothing of what you say, returned El Remy, brusquely. As I told you, you talk like a poet, harsher men than I would add, like a madman. You imagine you were born or came into being in a different planet from this, that you lived there, that you were exiled from thence by some mysterious doom and were condemned to pass into human existence here. Well, I repeat, Ferraz, this is your own fancy, the result of the strange double life you lead, which is not by my will or teaching. I believe only in what can be proved, and this that you tell me is beyond all proof. And yet said Ferraz, meditatively. Though I cannot reason it out, I am sure of what I feel. My dream is more lifelike than life itself, and as for my beloved people yonder, I tell you, I have heard them singing the harvest home. And with a quick soft step, he went to the piano, opened it, and began to play. El Remy leaned back, in his chair, mute and absorbed. Did ever common keyed instruments give forth such enchanting sounds? Was ever written music known that could, when performed, utter such divine and dulcet eloquence? There was nothing earthly in the tune. It seemed to glide from under the player's fingers like a caress upon the air. An involuntary sigh broke from El Remy's lips as he listened. Ferez heard that sigh and turned round, smiling. Is there not something familiar in the strain? He asked. Do you not see them all? 
so fair and light and lithe of limb, coming over the fields, homewards, as the red ring burns low in the western sky. Surely, surely you remember. A light shudder shook Oremi's frame. He pressed his hands over his eyes and seemed to collect himself by a strong effort. Then, walking over to the piano, he took his younger brother's hands from the keys and held them for a moment against his breast. Keep your illusions, he said in a low voice that trembled slightly. Keep them and your faith together. It is for you to dream and for me to prove. Mine is the hardest lot. There may be truth in your dreams. There may be deception in my proofs. Heaven only knows. Were you not of my own blood and dearer to me than most human things, I should, like every scientist worthy of the name, strive to break off your spiritual pinions and make of you a mere earth grub, even as most of us are made. But I cannot do it. I have not the heart to do it. And if I had the heart... He paused for a moment, then went on slowly. I have not the power. Good night. He left the room abruptly without another word or look, and the beautiful young Faraz gazed after his retreating figure, doubtfully and with something of wondering regret. Was it worthwhile, he thought, to be so wise? If wisdom made one at times so sad, was it well to sacrifice faith for fact, when faith was so warm and fact so cold? Was it better to be a dreamer of things possible, or a worker out of things positive? And how much was positive after all, and how much possible? He balanced the question lightly within himself. It was like a discord in the music of his mind and disturbed his peace. He soon dismissed the jarring thought, however, and, closing the piano, glanced round the room to make sure that nothing more was required for his brother's services or comfort that night, and then he went away to resume his interrupted slumbers, perchance to take up the chorus of his people, singing in what he deemed his native star. Chapter 4 El Raimi, meanwhile, slowly ascended the stairs to the first floor, and there on the narrow landing paused, listening. There was not a sound in the house. The delicious music of the strange harvest song had ceased, though to El Raimi's ears there still seemed to be a throb of its melody in the air, like perfume left from the carrying by of flowers. And with this vague impression upon him, he listened, listened as if it were to the deep silence, and as he stood in this attentive attitude, his eyes rested on a close door opposite to him, a door which might have taken off its hinges and exhibited at some museum, have carried away the palm for perfection in panel painting. It was so designed as to resemble a fine trellis work, 
hung with pale clambering roses and purple passion flowers. On the upper half among the blossoms sat a meditative Cupid, pressing a bud against his pouting lips, while below him, stretched in full-length desolation on a bent bough, his twin brother wept childishly over the piteous fate of a butterfly that lay dead in his curled pink palm. Elremi stared so long and persistently at the pretty picture that it might have been imagined he was looking at it for the first time and was absorbed in admiration. But truth to tell, he scarcely saw it. His thoughts were penetrating beyond all painted semblances of beauty. And, as in the case of his young brother Feraz, those thoughts were speedily answered. A key turned in the lock. The door opened, and a tall old woman, bronze-skinned, black-eyed, withered, uncomely yet imposing of aspect, stood in the aperture. Enter, El Remy. She said in a low yet harsh voice, The hour is late. But when did ever the lateness of hours change or deter your sovereign will? Yet truly a god liveth. It is hard that I should seldom be permitted to pass a night in peace. El Remy smiled indifferently but made no reply, as it was useless to answer Zaroba. She was stone deaf and therefore not in a condition to be argued with. She preceded him into a small ante-room, provided with no furniture than a table and chair. One entire side of the wall, however, was hung with a magnificent curtain of purple velvet bordered in gold. On the table were a slate and pencil, and these implements El Remy at once drew towards him. Has there been any change today? He wrote. Zeroba read the words. None. She replied, She has not moved, not a finger. He paused, pencil in hand, then he wrote, You are ill-tempered, you have your dark humour upon you. Zaroba's eyes flashed, and she threw up her skinny hands with a wrathful gesture. Dark humour, she cried in accents that were almost shrill, Ay, and if it be so, El Remy. What is my humour to you? Am I anything more to you than a cipher, a mere slave? What have the thought of a foolish woman, bent with years and close to the dark gateways of the tomb, to do with one who deems himself all wisdom? What are the feelings of a wretched, perishable piece of flesh and blood to a self-centred god and opponent of nature like Aramy Zavranos? She laughed bitterly. <laughs> Pay no heed to me, great master of the faiths, invisible, superb controller of the thoughts of men. Pay no heed to Zeroba's dark humours, as you call them. Zeroba has no wings to soar with. She is old and feeble, and aches at the heart with a burden of unshed tears. She would fain have been content with this low earthen whereon to tread in safety. She would fain have been happy with common joys. But these are debarred her, and her lot is like that of many a better woman. To sit solitary amongst the ashes of dead days and know herself desolate. 
She dropped her arms as suddenly as she had raised them. El Remy surveyed her with a touch of derision and wrote again on the slate, I thought, I thought you loved, loved your charge. Zaroba read and drew herself up proudly, looking almost as dignified as El Remy himself. Does one love a statue? She demanded. Shall I caress a picture? Shall I rain tears or kisses over the mere semblance of a life that does not live? Shall I fondle hands that never return my clasp? Love. Love is in my heart, yes, like a shut-up fire in a tomb. But you hold the key, El Remy, and the flame dies for want of air. He shrugged his shoulders, and putting the pencil aside, wrote no more. Moving towards the velvet curtain that draped the one side of the room, he made an imperious sign. Zaroba, obeying the gesture, mechanically and at once, drew a small pulley, by means of which the rich soft fold of stuff parted noiselessly asunder, displaying such a wonderful interior of luxury and loveliness as seemed for the moment almost unreal. The apartment open to view was lofty and perfectly circular in shape and was hung from top to bottom with silken hangings of royal purple embroidered all over with curious arabesque patterns in gold. The same rich material was caught up from the edges of the ceiling to the centre, like the drapery of a pavilion or tent, and was there festooned with golden fringes and tassels. From out of the midst of this warm mass of glistening colour swung a gold lamp, which shed its light through amber-hued crystal, while the floor below was carpeted with the thickest velvet pile, the design being pale purple pansies on a darker ground of the same almost neutral tint. A specimen of everything beautiful, rare and costly seemed to have found its way into this one room, from the exquisitely wrought ivory figure of a psyche on her pedestal, or to the tall vase of Venetian crystal, which held lightly up to view dozens of magnificent roses that seemed born of full midsummer, though as yet, in the capricious English climate, it was scarcely spring. And all the beauty, all the grace, all the evidences of perfect taste, art, care, and forethought were gathered together round one centre, one unseen, unresponsive centre, the figure of a sleeping girl. Pillowed on a raised couch, such as might have served a queen for costliness, she lay fast bound in slumber. A matchless piece of loveliness, stirless as marble, wondrous as the ideal of a poet's dream, her delicate form was draped loosely in a robe of purest white, arranged so as to suggest rather than conceal its exquisite outline. A silk coverlet was thrown lightly across her feet, and her head rested on cushions of the softest, snowiest satin. Her exceedingly small white hands were crossed upon her breast over a curious jewel. 
a sort of giant ruby cut in the shape of a star, which scintillated with a thousand sparkles in the light, and coloured the undertips of her fingers with a hue like wine, and her hair, which was of extraordinary length and beauty, almost clothed her body down to her knee, as with a mantle of shimmering gold. To say merely that she was lovely would scarcely describe her, for the loveliness that is generally understood as such was here so entirely surpassed and intensified that it would be difficult, if not impossible, to express its charm. Her face had the usual attributes of what might be deemed perfection, that is, the lines were purely oval, the features delicate the skin most transparently fair, the lips a dewy red, and the fringes of the closed eyes were long, dark, and delicately upcurled. But this was not all. There was something else, something quite undefinable, that gave a singular glow and radiance to the whole countenance, and suggested the burning of a light through alabaster. A creeping of some Subtle fire through the veins, which made the fair body seem the mere reflection of some greater fairness within. If those eyes were to open, one thought how wonderful their luster must needs be. If that perfect figure rose up and moved, what a harmony would walk the world in maiden shape. And yet, watching that hushed repose, that scarcely perceptible breathing, it seemed more than certain that she would never rise, never tread earthly soil in common with earth's creatures, never be more than what she seemed, a human flower gathered and set apart. For whom? For God's love or man's pleasure? Either, neither, or both. El Remy entered the rich apartment, followed by Zeroba, and stood by the couch for some minutes in silence. Whatever his thoughts were, his face gave no clue to them, his features being as impassive as though cast in bronze. Zeroba watched him curiously, her wrinkled visage expressive of some strongly surpassed passion. The sleeping girl stirred and smiled in her sleep, a smile that brightened her countenance as much as if a sudden glory had circled it with a halo. Aye, she lives for you, said Zoroba, and she grows fairer every day. She is the sun and you, the snow, but the snow is bound to melt in due season, and even you, Il Remy, Zaranos, will hardly baffle the laws of nature. Il Remy turned upon her, with a fierce, mute gesture that had something of the terrible in it, she shrank from the cold glance of his intense eyes, and in obedience to an imperative way of his hand, moved away to a farther corner of the room, where, crouching down upon the floor, she took up a quaint implement of work, a carved triangular frame of ebony with which she busied herself, drawing glittering threads in and out of it with marvellous speed and dexterity. She made with compassion. She was old and sad. Poor Zeroba. He went up to her when she crouched. He stood above her, 
His ardent, fiery eyes seemed to gather all their wonderful luster into one long, earnest and pitiful regard. Her work fell from her hands, and as she met that burning gaze, a vague smile parted her lips. Her frowning features smoothed themselves into an expression of mingled placidity and peace. Desolate Zaroba, said Elraimi, slowly lifting his hands. Widowed and solitary soul, deaf to the outer noises of the world. Let the ears of thy spirit be open to my voice, and hear thou all the music of the past. Lo, the bygone years return to thee, and picture themselves afresh upon thy tired brain. Again thou dost listen to the voices of thy children at play. The wild Arabian desert spreads out before thee in the sun like a sea of gold. The tall palms lift themselves against the burning sky. The tent is pitched by the cool spring of fresh water, and thy savage mate, wearied out with long travel, sleeps pillowed on thy breast. Thou art young again, Saroba, young, fair, and beloved. Be happy so. Dream and rest. By heavens, he muttered as he heard her regular breathing and noted the perfectly composed expression of her face. Are dreams, after all, the only certain joys of life? A poet's fancies, a painter's visions, the cloud castles of boys' imaginings, all dreams. And only such dreams can be called happy. Neither fate nor fortune can destroy their pleasure. They make sport of kings and hold great nations as the merest toys of thought. Oh, sublime audacity of vision! Would I could dream so, or rather, would I could prove my dreams, not dreams at all, but the reflections of the absolute real. Hamlet again, to die, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ay, there's the rub. Imagine it, to die and dream of heaven or hell, and all the while if there should be no reality in either. With one more glance at the now soundly slumbering Zoroba, he went back to the couch and gazed long and earnestly at the exquisite maiden there reclined. Then bending over her, he took her small, fair left hand in his own, pressing his fingers hard round the delicate wrist. Lilith, he said in low yet commanding accents. Lilith, speak, speak to me. me. I am here. Well, listeners, the mysteries just deepen and deepen in the soul of Lilith. We are introduced to three new characters, each very distinct, and each hold a very special place in El Remy's heart. Whenever El Remy moves through this world, it really does feel like he's the central force that makes everything else come to life. His brother, Feraz, the dreamer, the shaman, the thought wanderer, and Zoroba, the deaf scryer, who speaks clearly while still being deaf. And we meet Lilith herself, the focal piece of Elremi's mind, and apparently soul as well. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's tale as much as I did sharing it 
Next week will be the finale of Nero Wolf's old time radio and I'll spend some time sourcing a different series, one with equal charm, I'm sure. And much like El Remy's listeners, I too cherish immensely those that share their time, love, support, and in this case all of the above with me, my Patreons. People who support the show and allow me to focus on production instead of the costs of production. I really want to thank my old knighty titan, Matto Star. This guy straps this podcast and me into a slingshot aimed straight into the stars and just yells fire to see how far we go. Matto, not having to worry about monthly upkeep for costs related to production is a massive weight off my shoulders and one that all my Patreons help with. Thanks to you though, I'm able to not only cover costs, but look upwards into opportunities instead. Thanks to you and people like you, man, I can shift my production away from maintain and slowly improve to new and sparkling jet fuel. Thank you so much, I won't forget this. A special thank you as well to my honorary O-Night Titan, Majestic Maya. May your cat's claws be as sharp as ever. And a huge special thank you to you, Lezuka the Bazooka, half man, half muscle machine, fighting crime one bicep at a time. Mate, thank you for your patron support. I'm always blown away at your steadfast support, buddy, and I'm always grateful. I've been able to cover off monthly costs yet again when it comes to some purchases, but I focus this time on licenses, typography, and artwork. Thank you so much, mate. Your support is being used for some future plans. Lesdosaurus, mate. You are amazing. And the superstars that I'm lucky to have. My Earl Grey enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, divided by zero. Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. Thank you all for supporting me and the podcast. You are a very, very special set of people. If you've had an awful Monday, folks, I hope this episode helped brighten your day. And if you want to brighten my day like these lovies have via Patreon support, you can easily find me by Googling SFGT Patreon or Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales, Patreon, and I'll pop up. Also, if you want to email me for any reason, really, you can email me on storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. And no stress if you can't support financially, but I would love an iTunes review if you find some time up your sleeves. Now, write your story, share your tale, make it creepy, or something silly about a snail. But remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine, or the tingle that makes you smile from a perfect plotline? That's the magic of storytelling. Like tea, it's divine. You took the time to listen to me, and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet.